The sermon text for today is found in Mark chapter 8, verses 1 through 21. You can find this passage in the Blue Pew Bible on page 1535. Listen as I read God's word. During those days, another large, large crowd gathered. Since they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion for these people. They have already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them home hungry, they will collapse on the way because some of them have come a long distance. His disciples answered, But where in this remote place can anyone get enough bread to feed them? How many loaves do you have? Jesus asked. Seven, they replied. He told the crowd to sit down on the ground. When he had taken the seven loaves and given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to distribute to the people, and they did so. They had a few small fish as well. He gave thanks for them also and told the disciples to distribute them. The people ate and were satisfied. Afterward, the disciples picked up seven basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. About 4,000 were present. After he had sent them away, he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the region of Dalmanutha. The Pharisees came and began to question Jesus. To test him, they asked him for a sign from heaven. He sighed deeply and said, Why does this generation ask for a sign? Truly, I tell you, no sign will be given to it. Then he left them, got back into the boat, and crossed to the other side. The disciples had forgotten to bring bread, except for one loaf they had with them in the boat. Be careful, Jesus warned them. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. They discussed this with one another and said, It is because we have no bread. Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked them, Why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? And don't you remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? Twelve, they replied. And when I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? They answered, seven. He said to them, do you still not understand? Here ends the reading. Good morning, everyone. If I haven't had the chance to meet you, my name is John. I get to serve as the lead pastor here at Elmwood. As Suzanne was talking about uh, all the formaldehyde, I was thinking to myself, boy, you're really selling this whole labs thing. <laughs> Come, it'll smell like dead things. There won't be any smell of dead things. There won't also any, be any puppies. So I apologize for that. No labs. Um, but either way... <laughs> That's okay. That's what happens when you don't hold the mic and you just hand the mic to someone is you end up, you take a risk, right? <laughs> you take a risk doing that to me every single week. So <laughs> it's only right that someone else should have a risk taken with them as well. We have been making our way through the book of Mark. And as we've been doing so, we have been asking you to spend time throughout the week reading the book of Mark. 
not necessarily reading along with us um, in any particular order, but just spending time in the book of Mark. And we have been doing so trusting that as we read God's word, that we will encounter Jesus there and that God will change us. And so we have been asking you to do that. And then we've been uh, opening our time here on Sunday morning, expecting uh, that there will be good reports of how God is at work in your life as you've been reading the book of Mark. And so we want to hear from you. And so there's a handful of questions that we sort of throw up here every time we do this. Uh, What's capturing your attention? What are you reading in in the text that you're maybe seeing for the first time or seeing in fresh ways? Uh, what are you reading that's stirring your affections for God that's causing you to delight in him? How are you taking this home? What are you applying? What are you practicing based on what you're reading? And we just want to sort of open it up. And if there's some of you that would like to share, we'll take a couple of you. Um, If you can keep it to a minute or less, that'd be wonderful. A minute and a half tops. I will hold the microphone. You will not hold the microphone. And then uh, we'll take a couple of those if they're out there. And then we will move on into the rest of the message. So, If anyone would like to share, uh, go ahead and throw up your hand and I'll walk around towards you and we'll hear a couple. So I think it was three weeks ago um, when you were having a sermon about the disciples in the boat and Jesus passing by them. And I had never seen it in that way before about him wanting to show them his glory. And it really spoke to me of God wanting to show them their glory, but realizing they weren't ready for it. And instead of just kind of saying they're not ready for it and letting them sit there and struggle, he met them where they were and said they need, they need to be comforted. And he got in the boat and he comforted them. And so that was very comforting to me because Jesus doesn't say, oh, they don't get it. We'll just wait till they're ready. He meets us where we are. But it was also a challenge to me to see that how many times I miss what God is trying to show me because of my fear or not willing to surrender to him or stay focused on him. And so it was very um, comforting and also challenging to me. And so that's what I've been focusing on this week or the last few weeks. (laughs) Thanks for sharing that. Someone else? When we were um, doing the sermon or the the feeding of the 5,000 where the disciples have just worked their butts off on this big missions trip and Jesus is like, you need rest. Let's go somewhere and get rest. So they go to try to get rest and the crowds follow them and they don't get to rest and they're hungry and it says they don't even have time to eat and then the crowd needs to eat too. And they're like, we don't have, we have five loaves and two fish. That's not even enough for our needs, much less the crowds. And Jesus takes this little tiny bit and turns it into enough for the whole crowd, plus 12 lunchboxes for the disciples. And I was really touched by that as a stay-at-home mom where I'm like, there are so many days where I need rest. And we're not in a place where we need bread. We're in a place where we need, like rest and emotional sustenance and all of that. And at the end of the day, when I don't have any left and I need emotional sustenance and all my kids need emotional sustenance and all I have is five loaves and two fish, Jesus can take those crumbs and make it enough to take care of not just my children's needs, but my needs too. One more. 
I'm thinking of the sermon when he was in the boat, and it wasn't until you know, the boat was ready to go down and everybody woke him up. You know, and the whole thing about it is, is even when they needed the food, it's, just, it's not until people become desperate for God that he actually answers. And the whole thing about it is we have to, in our lives, get where we're desperate for God every day. In this country, it's hard because you're not always desperate for food. But the main thing is to be desperate for him. Yeah. So good. Thanks for sharing, everyone. All right. With that, let me invite you to join me for a word of prayer. And then we will get into looking at this passage here today. God, as we come before you this morning with your word open in front of us, we ask that you would open our eyes. We ask that you would open our hearts. We ask that you would open our minds to see the goodness and the beauty of Jesus. God, we ask that you would meet each of us where we are and that you would provide from your word exactly what each one of us need this morning. We pray that you would challenge us, that you would comfort us, that you would convict us, that you would challenge us, that you would, uh, that you would motivate us. Lord, we look to you to uh, give each one of us exactly what we need, and we trust you for that this morning. So we uh, look to your word and ask that you would open our eyes, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Some of the most difficult moments in life are when someone points out our blind spots. When someone points out something in us that we are blind to, that we simply can't see, those are some of the most difficult, uh, painful, stinging moments. I remember when I was fresh out of seminary, that should give you an idea of where the story is heading. <laughs> uh, I was fresh out of seminary, and I was in my first ministry, and I was greener than green, and I was learning, and I was in the process of getting some experience actually like preaching. And as I did so, I had a lady in our church one day pull me aside and say to me something to the effect of, you know, the content of what you're saying is really good. And I know your heart. Dot, dot, dot. (laughs) But you have a tone. And she says, I know that this is your enthusiasm that's coming out but your enthusiasm feels condescending to those who are listening to you. And that really stung, right? <laughs> really stung. And actually, there, honestly, there was part of me that was like, okay, I received that. That hurts. Also, I kind of don't believe you. And actually, earlier this year, we were cleaning out a box in my basement. And I found this wonderful, archaic piece of technology called a DVD. Kids, a DVD. And... On this DVD is a video that was recorded of me in one of my preaching classes in seminary. And you think the sermons now are bad. (laughs) Uh, You should have been there at the beginning. It was really bad. And I I watched this, and, and for the first time in my life, I was like, I understand exactly what she meant. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, watch party. Okay, so next time I get, next time I'm sick on Sunday, we're just gonna like roll film on this. <laughs> well, for a small fee, you can have a copy of this. I can't just let it go out for nothing. 
But anyways, that, that was, a, that was a, a blindness in my life that was just very painful. And we all have experienced areas uh, in our lives like this as well. And those areas of blindness, when someone points it out, can be very difficult. So for example, if someone comes to you and has to have the hard conversation of, you know, I'm giving you the benefit of the doubt that you don't mean to come off this way. But when you say this or when you do this, this is how other people receive it. This is how other people experience you. And those are some really, really painful conversations to be on the receiving end of. Uh, You can think of it not only relationally, but also in your vocation. Maybe you in your company or your field or your team, you just get like totally rocked by a market reality that no one saw coming. I don't know, like a global pandemic might be one of those things, right? And there's blindnesses that you have. Or maybe you walk into a performance review and you're like, I feel like I'm crushing it and I'm doing a great job. And then you get in there and realize that like your boss, your manager might not feel the same way about your work as you feel about your work. And that sort of area of blindness in your life can be really hard to receive that. It can be hard to receive if you are parenting and maybe there's a specific parenting challenge that you're facing or you're just trying to become the best parent you can. And so you like read a parenting book or you go to a parenting workshop of some kind and all of a sudden you start to see like all the things that like, man, I'm doing all the things the book tells me I shouldn't do. I'm doing none of the things the book tells me I should do. And you see all these sort of areas in your parenting where you're like, okay, now I'm aware of these things, but man, it stings when you hear about those things in the moment. And of course, we could identify a dozen different areas of life where we see and experience this kind of blindness and our spiritual lives are no different. Our spiritual lives are right in the mix of those areas of life where we can experience or we can see in others significant areas of blindness. And that's really the focus of our passage today as we look at Jesus and his interaction with the disciples and his interaction with these Pharisees and the religious leaders. So as we look at this passage, what we're going to do is we're going to explore both the danger of spiritual blindness, but then we're also going to see the solution to it. How do we navigate? How do we combat spiritual blindness? So the first thing I want to explore with you this morning is the danger of spiritual blindness. Our text begins with Jesus doing a miracle that sounds very, very familiar if you've been reading the book of Mark. He, in the middle of a desert, he feeds a multitude of hungry people. And if you've been tracking along with us, or if you're just familiar with the book of Mark, you know that this sounds so familiar. And it's because the feeding of the 4,000 that we see here in chapter 8 is almost identical to the feeding of the 5,000 that we saw back in chapter 6. And there's actually a lot of people that would say, uh, you know, it's possible that this is a retelling of the same story. Some people say, you know, as Mark was compiling his accounts of Jesus' life and ministry, there were two versions of the same story that were kind of floating around out there, and he included both. That's one way to account for it. I don't think that's the best way to account for the similarities, because in the midst of all the similarities, there is one key difference, and that's the key to understanding why we have these two stories that look almost identical in the same book. So remember, the first time that Jesus did this miracle where he fed the crowd in the wilderness and made this miraculous provision of bread, the first time he did that was in a predominantly Jewish environment. And the point of that story was that Jesus was revealing his divine identity. Jesus was revealing himself to his disciples as the God who provides manna and bread for his people in the wilderness. The same God from the book of Exodus who miraculously provided bread for his people, is now standing among them doing the same miracle again. And so that was the point of the first one. 
But then we come to the second miracle that's almost identical in so many ways. And you can, even in your English Bibles, trace all of the themes and the language that are exactly the same in both stories. And for all the things that are the same, there's one huge thing that's different. And it's that this time, Jesus is now doing the same miracle, but in Gentile territory. He's doesn't, he has a completely different audience. And so as we see both of these stories in the book of Mark, we're supposed to be able to connect the dots. We're supposed to be able to understand and to see that his miraculous provision is not just for the people of Israel. It is not just for the Jewish people. It is for all people. His provision, his deliverance, his salvation is not just for one sort of little group of people. It is for the world. And so we see Jesus going out and and revealing himself. Not only did he put on a feast for the Jewish people in the wilderness, he also puts on the same feast for the Gentile people in the wilderness as well. And so we're supposed to be able to see Jesus revealing himself as the one whose provision is for all people. And it's in the context, it's in the midst of this miracle that we see the spiritual blindness of the religious leaders. So Jesus does this miracle and they set out from the place where they were and they go to this region called Dalmanutha. And once they arrive there at this place that was, um, scholars believe, in a predominantly Jewish environment, so he's back in his sort of home turf. When he gets there, there's a group of Pharisees that meet him. It says in verse 11, the Pharisees came and began to question Jesus. To test him, they asked him for a sign from heaven. He sighed deeply and said, why does this generation ask for a sign? Truly I tell you, no sign will be given to it. Then he left them, got back into the boat, and crossed over to the other side. A few important things to observe about this interaction. When they ask Jesus for a sign from heaven, they are not just asking Jesus to do another miracle. They're not just asking him to heal someone, or to drive out a demon, or to do some of the kind of stuff that he's done before. They are asking him to do something that provides conclusive, once and for all proof that his authority, without a shadow of a doubt, comes from God himself. So they're asking Jesus to do something on the scope of what we see, for example, in 1 Kings chapter 18 in the Hebrew Bible, where there's a prophet named Elijah, and he's going sort of to battle with the prophets of this false god named Baal, and he calls down fire from heaven, and it consumes the altar that they've constructed, and it consumes the sacrifice, and it consumes all the prophets of Baal. And so it's like, okay, conclusive proof that this guy is like, God is working through this man, Elijah, that's the kind of thing that they're hoping for. They're asking Jesus to do something so big and so spectacular that there can be no question as to where his authority comes from. It also says that the Pharisees, uh, they came to test Jesus. There's only, that, that word tested, there's only two groups of people, there's two times, two groups of people in the book of Mark who test Jesus the religious leaders, and who else? Trivia question. Satan. (laughs) So in chapter one, where it says that Jesus was cast out by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness, where he was tempted by Satan, it's the same word that's used there, but it can be translated as either tested or tempted, depending on the context. And so it's only the religious leaders and Satan who tempt Jesus in the book of Mark. 
And so what Mark wants us to see is that by asking Jesus to do this sign, by testing Jesus, these religious leaders are acting in league with Satan. That's what he wants us to see. And Jesus here refuses to play their games. Jesus refused to play by their rules. And the main reason is because they lacked the fundamental baseline willingness to even believe if Jesus did do the sign. You see, Jesus knew that the problem was not a lack of evidence. The problem was not a lack of information. And it's like, well, if I just do this miracle, well, then, then they'll, you know, they'll finally get it. No, the, the Pharisees and these religious leaders have seen Jesus firsthand do miracles and even say and do things claiming not just to be acting in authority with God's authority, but claiming to be God himself. They've seen him do that. They've heard secondhand testimony of Jesus doing things and Jesus saying things that incontrovertibly prove once and for all that Jesus is God himself who took on human flesh. So it's not, for, it's not because they lack evidence that they don't believe. It's because they have closed their hearts off to Jesus. All the way back in chapter 3, the religious leaders go out with the Herodians and plot how they can kill Jesus. They don't have a baseline openness to receive a sign even if Jesus were to give it to them in the first place. And so by saying, no, I'm not going to give you a sign, Jesus is saying, essentially, if what I've given you already isn't enough, one more miracle, one more sign isn't actually going to do anything because the problem is not a lack of evidence or information. The problem is that your hearts have been hardened. You have closed your hearts off. You are not spiritually even willing to consider who I actually am if I were to give you the sign that you want. And so Jesus basically says, uh, I'm not going to give you a sign. They refuse to believe what's already been made plain to them. And so Jesus leaves them, which is a sign of judgment. He left them, got back into the boat, and went on his way. And then we come to another scene of spiritual blindness, but this time the spiritual blindness is Jesus' own disciples who have been with him for, at this point, we don't know how long they've been with him, but for plenty of time. And so after Jesus uh, leaves the disciples, uh, leaves the Pharisees rather, he gets back into the boat with his disciples and he says to them what is, uh, you know, to be fair, kind of a cryptic thing. Jesus said to his disciples, Be careful, watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and Herod. This little uh, phrase that Jesus uses here is kind of like a parable. In that, it takes a little bit of like mental energy. (laughs) It takes a little bit of like thoughtfulness to actually say, okay, well, what in the world does that mean? And you got to kind of chew on it and ponder it and meditate on it to be able to understand. But it's right in the context of he's just had this uh, clash with the Pharisees. And so he uses this language of yeast. And the language of yeast is, it, he uses this picture of something that spreads, right? So you put this little bit of yeast inside of a, inside of a loaf, inside of a, you know, a batch of dough. And that little bit of yeast permeates the entire loaf of bread and organically changes it from the inside out. And this is why virtually every place in the New Testament where yeast is brought up, It's used to talk about the permeating effects of sin. And so Jesus says, watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees, this thing that that grows and it infects and it even festers. 
Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and Herod, which I think is referring to uh, blindness to Jesus' identity and opposition to the kingdom of God. That's what I think this sort of blindness is. So Jesus tells them to watch out for it, and their response shows just how blind they actually are. Verse 16, they discussed this with one another and said, it is because we have no bread. Which just shows they completely, just like, right over top of their heads, they completely missed the point. They don't understand. And so in response to that, Jesus then asks this scathing slew of questions. Why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? And don't you remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? Twelve, they replied. And when I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? They answered, seven. Do you still not understand? What we see in this interaction with Jesus and his own disciples is that the disciples of Jesus are in danger of being as blind and as stubborn and as hard-hearted as the Pharisees. Right? Jesus has just like left the Pharisees in an act of judgment by walking away from them. They're blind, they're stubborn, they're hard-hearted, and the disciples are like one step away from that. One, one uh, commentator put it helpfully when he said that the disciples are teetering on the brink of pharisaical blindness. That's what we see in this passage. Just notice the contrast between Jesus' own disciples and the Gentiles. Remember, these last three miracles are all done in Gentile territory. So remember when Jesus had that conversation with the Gentile woman? And they talk about bread. And she completely understands. She has faith. Jesus commends her faith because she understands. Jesus gives this sort of little, you know, parable. uh, Don't give the children's bread to the dogs. And she sort of, they go back and forth and he commends her for her faith as they talk about bread. And then Jesus' own disciples are in the boat with him and they're talking about bread and they totally missed the point. And, And you look at it and you're like, The Gentiles are in this sort of little section of the book of Mark. They are the ones who exercise faith. They are the ones who see. They are the ones who understand. And the religious elite of Jesus' day and his own disciples who have been with him, maybe for years at this point, completely misunderstand. And so the contrast couldn't be clearer between Jesus' disciples and the religious leaders and the Gentiles who have faith in Jesus. The sobering and humbling humbling reality is that Jesus' own disciples are capable of hard-hearted spiritual blindness. Jesus' very own disciples are capable, it is not beyond them, to embody a kind of hard-hearted spiritual blindness. We are fellow disciples along with the twelve. 
which means that we too are also capable of the same kind of hard-hearted spiritual blindness that we see in the disciples here. And it's the moment that we sort of look down on them, which is super easy, right? To look at the Pharisees and be like, man, you guys are so dumb. Or to look at the disciples and say, boy, you people just don't get it, do you? It's so easy to, to look down our nose and to have feelings of, uh, you know, like condescension towards the religious leaders and towards the Pharisees and say, man, if I was there, I probably would have answered the right way. I wouldn't have done that. I wouldn't have said that. And the moment that we look down on these people who we see who just don't get it, who are spiritually blind, that is the moment when we are most vulnerable because we have refused to believe that we are actually capable of hard-hearted spiritual blindness. But what this shows us is that Jesus' own disciples are capable of that exact same kind of thing. It's not exactly the most encouraging and uplifting thing that you could have heard this morning, I know. (laughs) You're welcome for that. Uh, So the question is, well, what's the solution? What hope is there for us? Because we do see that there's hope for the disciples here in this passage. Let's think together about the solution to spiritual blindness then. We're capable of it. So what's the solution to it? I'm going to suggest that um, the solution is less of a solution in the sense that it's not like a one-time thing, right? Like, a oh, I, I, I did that thing, or I said that thing, or I prayed that thing, so therefore uh, that spiritual blindness thing is behind me. I'm no longer capable of that. It's less of a solution in terms of being a one-time thing, and I guess more of what I'm going to provide is a formula for how to combat spiritual blindness. It's got three parts to it, uh, and the solution to spiritual br- blindness And the way that we combat spiritual blindness is no different than the way that they do in this passage. So let's look first and see uh, the first sort of aspect of this formula for combating spiritual blindness is stay with Jesus. The disciples, their only hope throughout the rest of the book of Mark is to stay with Jesus, to be near Jesus, to be in close proximity to Jesus, to hear him to receive his teaching, to sit under his correction, to receive his forgiveness and his mercy and his grace. That is the only hope the disciples have is that they stay with Jesus. Because if they lose proximity to Jesus, it's almost guaranteed. It's almost inevitable that they will drift further and further and further into hard-hearted spiritual blindness. So they have to stay with Jesus. The second part is this, cultivate a willingness to hear, understand, and believe. The disciples are slow learners, which should be like super encouraging for all of us (laughs) because we are not that much different in oftentimes in the pace of our learning and understanding either. So the disciples are slow learners, but they have one thing that the Pharisees don't have. They have a baseline willingness to hear and understand and believe Jesus. The Pharisees have already closed themselves off. And so the disciples, they are slow learners. The disciples are dense. And yet Jesus has something to work with because they have a baseline openness to Jesus and his teaching. And, and, and for as slow as they are, they want to be with Jesus. 
They want to listen to his teaching. They want to understand. They want to believe. And so that's a second sort of aspect of this sort of formula for combating spiritual blindness is number one, stay with Jesus. Number two is cultivate that willingness to hear and understand and believe. And the last aspect of it is saturate your heart with the grace of Jesus. Even in these scathing questions that Jesus asked, there is grace. Notice the way Jesus talked with the Pharisees and the way he talked with his disciples. With the Pharisees, Jesus sighed deeply. And then he said, Truly I tell you, no sign will be given. It's impossible to see this in our English translations, but that's actually an oath formula. Jesus is making an oath, promising, no sign will be given to this generation, who's exactly like the generation that was going from the wilderness into the promised land, who died off in the wilderness because they saw the miraculous works of God and chose not to believe. He says, no sign will be given. And so he sighs deeply. He promises that no sign will be given, and then he leaves them. That's an act of judgment against the Pharisees and the religious leaders. And yet what Jesus does with his disciples is he asks them questions. Do you still not understand? Do you still not see or believe or hear? And in asking those questions, they are difficult questions to hear. They are scathing questions. But they are an attempt to grab the disciples by the shoulders and shake them into an alertness. And say, guys, don't you, don't you see? Don't you understand? So by asking these questions, as difficult and as scathing as they are, these questions are not meant to shove the disciples aside and to push them away. These questions are meant to elicit a response of faith from the disciples who say, oh my goodness, I'm so blind. That's the goal of these. And so we see, even as this account ends, with this hanging question. We don't know how they respond. It ends with him saying, do you still not understand? And so that hanging question leaves us as readers saying, there's hope. Jesus did not move on from them. Jesus did not give up on them. And that is the hope that they have. And that is the exact same hope that we have. And so this is sort of uh, a bit of a formula for what what does it look like for us to practically combat spiritual blindness? Because we're capable of it. How do we combat it? Number one, we stay with Jesus. We stay near Jesus We cultivate a willingness, a a deep heart openness to hear the things of Jesus, the things that are difficult to hear, the things that we maybe uh, wish weren't (laughs) in the Bible or wish weren't true. We cultivate a heart that loves to trust Jesus implicitly and desires to see and hear and understand and believe. And then we saturate our hearts with the grace of Jesus. We remind ourselves of the fact that Jesus did not give up on his disciples. He didn't give up on them and he doesn't give up on us either. So that's how we cultivate this. That's how we um, combat spiritual blindness. Let me leave you with a few questions for you to ponder. One of those questions is a question that you can ask God. One of those is a question that you can ask yourself. Okay? So the first question that I'll just sort of pose to you to take home sometime this week and ask God is this. What areas of hard-hearted spiritual blindness exist in me? It's kind of a horrifying question to ask, isn't it? 
because I don't really want to know the answer, do I? Ask God, what areas of hard-heartedness or spiritual blindness exist in me? God, are there things, are there patterns of thoughts or behavior or belief, motivations that I have that I'm just totally blind to, that I just can't even see, that are not in alignment with how you would desire me to be living? And ask God, would you reveal to me areas of spiritual blindness in my life? The other aspect of that is, God, would you reveal to me, show me the areas of hard-heartedness? And those may be more obvious to you. (laughs) You probably know those areas, right? Uh, God, what are the patterns of entrenched, unrepentant sin that exists in my life that you need me to deal with? That I've maybe been kind of pushing aside or not paying attention to. I've been not inviting anyone else into. What are the things I'm hiding? What are the addictions what are the, the things that, that I just kind of want to, the sins I want to nurse? God, would you help me see those things clearly? I'm not saying that there has to be an answer to either of these questions for you this week, okay? You may sit down with God and he doesn't reveal some specific area for you. My encouragement is, is this, don't assume the answer is there is none, God might not reveal anything to you. There might not be anything like that. But just don't assume that the answer is, well, there is no area of hard-heartedness in me. There is no area of spiritual blindness in me. And it goes back to cultivating that desire to actually see and believe and understand and hear and learn. So ask this question of God this week. What are the areas of hard-heartedness and blindness that exist in me? And the second question you can ask yourself, what rhythms do I have in place to stay near Jesus? If staying near to him is a huge part of what it means to combat spiritual blindness, and if part of our only hope is actually being near Jesus, the question is, okay, well, what are the actual rhythms or practices I have in my life that actually enable me to be near Jesus? So maybe do some self-assessment and say, what are the things I'm currently doing, if anything, And then I ask, okay, are there things that I am sensing God saying I should start doing? And just bring those questions before the Lord this week. As we come to the communion table today, we are reminded, as we are every single week, that our only hope is that Jesus did not give up on us. Unlike the disciples who abandoned Jesus in his moment of greatest need, unlike Peter who opens his mouth and says, doesn't matter what anyone else does, I will never abandon you, Jesus. And then like 15 minutes later, he's like got his tail between his legs and he's running the opposite direction. The disciples did not remain faithful to Jesus. They gave up on him. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus did not give up on us. And the cross is the proof of that. The cross of Jesus going and suffering and dying in our place for our sin is the conclusive proof that in spite of our spiritual blindness, in spite of the areas of hard-heartedness inside of us, Jesus has not given up on us and will not give up on us. So we get to remember and celebrate as we come forward and receive the broken body and shed blood of Jesus. That's what it communicates to us. 
It communicates the lengths to which God would go in order to give us new life and to redeem us. And it reminds us and it, and it promises us, if he was willing to give his own son, do you think he would abandon you now? And so we get to come and receive the broken body and shed blood of Jesus and remember this as the proof that he has not given up on us. As we come to the communion table, I'm going to leave just a few moments of silence for confession, for reflection, for whatever business you sense you need to do with God over these next few moments. But let's take a few minutes of silence and then we will come to the communion table together.